0: on the Football CFB podcast today by Mark Warburton, current QPR manager, also managed Glasgow Rangers, Nottingham Forest, Brentford, worked at Watford and even worked in the city markets. It's an absolute pleasure, thanks for joining me.
1: No, my pleasure, nice to talk to you Callum.
0: Um, I'd like to start Mark, you're obviously at QPR, you're, you're doing really well but the lockdowns is obviously upon us. How is that affecting you as a manager? How are you coping with that? Because I imagine as a manager, not being able to what we are players
1: on a daily basis is, is bizarre? It is bizarre. I mean, we're, we're very conscious, Callum. Um, there's far bigger issues in football around at the moment, affecting yeah. societies. That's the most most important point to get across. So you and I are talking football, which is great, but we've, we've never lost sight of the, the bigger picture. Um, but as a manager, it's bizarre because you have this daily interaction with players. They're used to working in an environment um, technically, tactically, physically, mentally, et cetera, which aids their development, surrounded by the players and the staff. And now here you are giving individual programmes to guys at home. So today, for example, the boys had a 5K time trial, weight programme this afternoon. But it's very, very hard. And the biggest, the hardest factor which dominates all of our conversation is a resumption of, of the league programme. Because if you have a date to work towards, Callum, You and I might say July the 1st, September the 1st, October the 1st, whatever it may be, you have a date. And you can work towards that from a loading perspective, from a planning perspective, from a financial perspective. But when you have no end date, you're sitting here saying, well, do we work the players hard? Do we give them two or three weeks to to download, deload them and then come back more aggressively? There's so much uncertainty and that causes the anxiety. So I'm avoiding your question, but not really. It's We do what we have to do. You try and develop them tactically via analysis, video footage, but it's so hard. Until we have that end date, Callum, once we have that, I think so much more certainty can return to football.
0: In terms of yourself then, Mark, as a manager, are, are you using this time to read to up in different coaching techniques and try and access as much as you can to try and learn and be creative during this lockdown yourself? you've got to
1: be you've got to be honest with yourself you've got to look at areas where where you know you're weak and you need some improvement you've got but there's a lot of work to do Callum which doesn't feel like work to you and I you know you said you tell in terms of teaching if you're in front of a classroom of children and you're doing what you're doing you feel like you're working when you're at home it's not quite the same the quite same feeling really so you know we we look at it and go you have to contact the staff you have to maintain regular contact you have to make sure there's a rotor of calls to the individual players one call might take three minutes, one call might take two hours. You, you just don't know. So you may plan to get through 15 calls in a day and only work through X amount. So, you know, your day is busy. You're looking at training programs. When we do come back, will we have a three-week condensed program, Will we have a four-week, or we have a six-week? Again, we just don't know. You have to plan for every eventuality. And then you're looking at different ideas. You've learned from your team, your squad. Um, you've learned more about the division and the opponents within the division in the first 75% of the season. So how are you going to adapt to the last eight, nine games? Uh, and what do you need to do to hit the ground running? Because we're mid-table, we're only six points off the playoff. So in our, from our point of view, if we can put a really good run together, we want a good run. If we can maintain that, we can be in a good position. So it's trying to balance all of these things. So there's no, there's no, you know, abundance of free time. You're not wasting time, Callum. You're using it, hopefully, as wise as, as, wise as you possibly can.
0: You mentioned the fact you're only six points off the playoffs. How do you reflect on the season so far? Are you overall quite happy with the progress?
1: We had a... I won't bore you with the details. I'm sure it's it's already come out. We had a major overhaul, more than a major overhaul. And yeah, normally, if you change five, six, seven players, you'd say that's quite significant. we changed, we we changed 14, 15 players. So we had... The FFP situation impacting the club. Um, we had five players, convicts up that we could we had to sort of remove straight away because again they, the, the basic pay was too high and we had to try and cut our cloth a little bit better. Um, so we had a lot of, of free transit Lee Wallace, obviously, you know, Liam Kelly, you know, um, you know, high quality individuals coming in, um, likes of Mark Pugh with his Premier League and championship background, Jeff Cameron from the Premier League and senior players, Angel Rangel, outstanding professional. And then Don Ball, who you would know from Rangers and Aberdeen, of course. So younger players, you know, young Luke Amos and Lone from Spurs. This, this, type, of, this type of squad building, Ilias Chia, a really talented young 21-year-old returning from, from loan last year where he impressed so many people. And then working with what we had, the likes of Ryan Manning at Biore, Bright, etc. I mean, we had others, others, of course, come in, Todd Keynes and, and, and these type of guys. But it was a mass in a squad, Callum, where you know you've had a major a major major surgery has been has been uh, worked on the squad but how quickly can you get them to gel and deal with the demands of a division which is so so challenging you know there there is no easy game there's no week when you look at your squad and go we can rest two or three can't happen because if you do that here in the championship you get hurt quickly so again i think we we've, we've um, got to be pleased we've had a really poor january which cost us in terms of you know we dropped points where we should have gained a lot, six, seven more points. But you've got to say that we're only six points off the playoff with a new squad. So we've got to be, got to be pleased with a lot of the work. But now there's a lot of improvements still to come.
0: Obviously, the Championship's filled with teams that have got far bigger budgets than, than, than you've got at QPR. Leeds being one of those clubs, obviously, with be in charge. Who have been the best and most challenging teams you've had to face this season, Mark?
1: There's some really high-quality squads, Callum. Obviously, you're, you know you're, you're very knowledgeable about the division. You look at Leeds in terms of their their physicality, you know their athleticism, uh, and they, they they possess some really highly talented players with a real uh, a real uh, dynamism about their play. You look at West Brom, a squad packed with quality um, in terms of their organisation and managing a great job but their experience within the division and higher, the likes of Jake Livermore, of course, and Diango and Pereira, these type of very talented players. Then you look at Fulham and you realise, you look at a front line of a Mitrovic, a Knockhart, a Caballero, you know, Kearney, McDonald, a Doré, Tim Ream, you know, the goalkeeper Rodak's been outstanding. So, and again, he's so probably managed by Scott and his team. So there's some really strong teams, Nottingham Forest, Brentford are an outstanding footballing team that can hurt so many teams on their day. And they're right up there for a reason. They're, they're a very talented, you know, squad put together there. So the division itself is so strong. But the, what, what makes it so special is uh, the likes of Barnsley will go to Fulham and win 3-0 at Craven Cottage. And people are surprised by the result, but they're not shocked. You know, if a bottom of the Premier League beats the top, it's front-page news and everywhere. If someone beats Celtic or Rangers, front-page news. But here, in this division... Barney, Luton, Wigan, oh, beating Leeds 1-0. Oh, well, we just move on. And that's, that's the beauty mm. of this division. You've no idea what's going to happen next.
0: What's been your favourite game to be involved in this season so far?
1: Um, favourite game? Um, you've got to think about when you go away and you have good away performances in this division because they are, there are some really tough trips to go to. Um, but the opening game, the opening game for me to go to Stoke City... Uh, a squad packed with Premier League players at a packed away ground. You know, confidence there was very, very high, and we went there as one of the favourites for relegation. So to go there and to de- deliver a really controlled performance, to deservedly take the three points and to play in that manner, it, it gave the boys and the fans so much belief in what the squad could hopefully achieve. You're going to have good days and lots of good days, Callum, but that type of result. you know, There's been, been some very good performances and ever since, but that to, to go the opening game of the season with a completely new look squad and to play in that manner and, and to get that belief was very, very important for us.
0: What's it like managing and being around Loftus Road? For me, it's one of those classic football stadiums that's in a city like London is basically built in the middle of of, yeah. of, of, of the sort of area. Um, I'd love to visit it one day. What's it like?
1: Yeah, it's been renamed now the Kean Prince Foundation Stadium, you know, in, yep. in memory of the, the tragic events that happened. Um, but it is exactly as you say. You know, you look at the, those type of grounds. I went there in their their best ever season. Frank Kintock was the manager. Neil, his son, was my best mate at school. So I was very fortunate to go to every home game throughout a season when they ran Liverpool so close to what would be now be the Premier League title. But it's uh, an old football stadium in terms of the atmosphere, fans close to the pitch, and you know, you've, you've been to enough of them yourself, Cullen, but they're, they're proper football grounds. You know, they are, I mean, you can moan at the state, the dressing rooms are quite cramped, or there's not enough space, and the manager's office is tiny, irrelevant. The fact is, it's got all the atmosphere of an old football stadium, and the history attached to it, and when you see clubs put up their badges, you know, 1882, 1886, whatever it may be, when you see that, it, you realise the history of the game, history of these clubs, and uh, yeah, it's a privilege to play there, absolutely.
0: I want, I'm going to put you on the spot slightly here, Mark. Um, you're obviously six points off the playoffs. What are your hopes longer term for QPR?
1: I think um, we've got to be realistic, Callum. You know, we've got, we've got uh, a few really bright young talents who are being superbly marshaled by some of the older, the older players, the mentoring role they're playing, the likes of Mark Pugh, Jeff Cameron, Grant Hall, Angeli, Wallace. The role they're playing uh, with the younger players is so vitally important. Can you hang on to them? We've got two or three boys who undoubtedly can go and play Top 6 Premier League. Undoubtedly. So, again, it's when their time comes. Hopefully, the club may buy them and keep them with us and whatever else. You never know what the scenario might be, Callum. But we undoubtedly have some really talented young players. Now, if you can keep the squad together and you can learn from this season, if we can give it really strong push towards the end of the season, you never know where it takes you. You never know how much belief and, and desire can be taken from that. Um, but I think you have to recognise in this division that you've got to keep moving forward. You can't sit on your lulls in any shape. If we were to come, pick a number, ninth, 10th, you can't then sit and go, oh, we've got a good season now and, and rest. You've got to keep driving because teams will keep pushing forward. The division is unique because the, the the prize at the end of the rainbow is so significant. You know, the land of milk and honey is is a promotion <laughs> away. And that's what it is. You know, you're talking about 100... And, 50, 60, 70 million for promotion. Now, I've always said to the Scottish media, think of what you get for winning the SPFL title, for being the best team. And you're talking about some, you know, obviously Celtic Rangers, etc. cetera, but here, the big teams in Scotland. And then you're looking at 150 million, whatever it may be, for promotion to the Premier League. So it's an enormous carrot. That, that dangles in front of the owners. You can see why so much energy and money is expended to try and achieve the goal, or the, you know, achieve the target. Um, and it is, it is a unique division in that respect.
0: I want to rewind back to your playing career. You started at Leicester under Frank McClintock, who we talked about earlier. What was that like coming through at Leicester? And were you always a defender?
1: How can I describe myself? Bang average. I think he's probably the best, Callum. I think I could... Uh, <laughs> I could go to, and that's on a good day. Now, listen, I was a normal kid. You go there, you're a young apprentice in those days, and Frank had signed me, but then Frank was sacked before the season started at the end of the previous season. So I arrived with a certain Mr. Jock Wallace. Um, It's amazing. I I look at it, and when I think at the time, if he'd imagined that I was going to manage his beloved Glasgow Rangers X number of years later, you know, he would have... How much money you could have got the bookies for that one, Callum? (laughs) <laughs> but, um, but you look at it, and uh, Frank never... I never had the beauty of working with Frank, so with Jock, and I've got to be honest, I'm saying this full of respect for the man, his family, and of what, what he achieved in the game, and quite rightly, the the esteem that he's held in, in Glasgow. But I, I disagree with his methods. You know, it was very old school. It was very... He, had, he was a Marine. He was very disciplined in his approach. You know, it was a kick, bark, bite type approach and in football those days I guess it was you know it was accepted in in 95% of the places I knew as a young 17 year old six you know I knew that I would never work like that and it sounds very profound for a young kid out of school but I knew I loved sport and I found myself falling out of love with a sport that I absolutely lived every minute of every day for I loved running I loved all sorts I was lucky to be good at sports but football was what we all love Uh, and I found myself quickly falling out of love with that which was Very, very sad for me personally. And you can turn around quite rightly and say, well, toughen up quicker and get used to it and deal with it. It wasn't in my nature to speak to people that way. And as I say, Jock got a lot of guys down from north of the border. They were used to that style. You know, I'm thinking of Eddie Kelly, the double winning captain. from You know, Alan Smith coming down and, you know, Stevie. And There's some really good players there. Good team. But I just found that it, it didn't, for me, it wasn't for me. And I quickly after a couple of years, I went into semi-pro playing with Enfield. We, we had a really good team. You know, they won the trophy and I won the conference, etc. Really good team. But this coincided with me going to the city, Callum. And um, you've that's another really competitive environment. People won't understand it because they've never seen it. So they won't understand it, but it was um it was a really competitive environment, teamwork, communication, you know, good days, ballast, good bonus if you did well. I loved that type of it, and it was a world that I could build, you know, really drive into and get better at. And as the responsibility increased, you're working you're working 14, 15-hour days, so football became very much, you know, a nice-to-have as opposed to a must-have.
0: You mentioned the fact that it became a nice-to-have, and you played with Enfield and then Boreham Woods. Did you combine those with working in the city?
1: Yeah, I did. And as I say, you know, Enfield, you're training two or three times a week. Uh, in the evening, but I, I found myself trying to get home. You know, I'd, I'd get in the office at, uh, i never forget, I got the 440, I got up the 442, caught the 512 train, caught the 512 train, and, and, and you're at your desk, so oh, excuse me, you, you're at your desk, At you know, just after six, just before six. Is that me or is that you? Is that me at the rock? I think that might be you. There, there you go. Um, so okay. you're at your desk actually before six. And, and you're doing, you know, you're leaving again. For These are long hours with a lot of responsibility that was growing in terms of the risk parameters you had. Um, so it was really hard to do. So, yeah, I was a, listen, I was a semi-pro, part-time player, bang average, and, but always loved my sports. And um, wherever I worked in the world, I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina. I lived in Chicago, worked in Asia, New York. Wherever I worked, I coached. You know, in in Chicago, you're coaching a girls under nine team, a <laughs> high school team, a bank team, the local, you know, village team, whatever you want to call it. I just coached anyone. Um, loved doing it. In those days, if you had an English accent, everyone presumed you could play football. That's just the way it was in this <laughs> game. So um, I played for the local pro team, and uh, trained there, which I really enjoyed. I did some coaching of that team as well. You know, went down to UNC, Chapel Hill, um, and sort of worked down there. I loved it absolutely loved it. And from, from my perspective, when I came back, I had no idea qualifications even existed. So I was at AIG and someone said to me, what, what badge have you got? <laughs> What's a badge? So very quickly, I found myself being a senior dealer, chief in charge of, you know, dest and you know, billions of dollars going through us every day. And you're doing your levels three and then your A license and doing your logbook work. And, and that was it. And I knew I had to I knew I had to, I wanted to get out at that, po- at that point. Um, but as I say, it's, it's a big, big call.
0: In terms of being in the city, Mark, obviously you mentioned that I would never understand it, and unless you've worked there, you probably wouldn't either. See, when you're dealing with those vast sums of money, does that? how does that make you feel? Because when you mention billions of dollars coming through every day, for me, that just makes me, I, w- I would be very nervous if that was me.
1: No, of course. And take this the right way, Callum. People, you know, I see lots of comments about bankers and their bonuses and people don't realise we only got paid a bonus if you made X amount for your employer. You don't just give a bonus away for the sake of it. You know, someone might get a seven figure bonus. Not me, I'm saying in, in, in general, but that means they might have made they must have made at least 10 million for their employer. Now, if you worked at the school and you had nine teachers making 10 million each, you've got no problem paying them a million pound bonus each you're still nine million better off per teacher so that's how the city worked it worked on performance they got a lot of base salaries became very standard uh, and you got rewarded on your performance and again i love that world of, of if you do well you get rewarded for it but again you're talking about why how the city and how do the, the markets exist trade you know so if you're if you buy an x amount of bmw cars and right now you've got the, the they're in they're sold in sterling over here there's a trade to do to sell sterling and buy euros Now, whether that trade is 10 million or 50 million or 500 million or 2 billion, whatever it may be, you know, these massive firms, Johnson, Johnson and Glaxo and all of these various firms, huge currency movements every day. So you can imagine the bigger the bank, the bigger the customer base, the bigger the amount of money going through all of these various currency pairs. And before the euro came in, you had dollar mark, dollar Paris, dollar Swiss, dollar French, dollar Belge dollar danish dollar you name it and all of these currencies are, dollar sterling all of these currencies and cross currencies are going off so it was a it was a world where people will be very skeptical of it very critical of it until they get in it and then they realize what's involved why it actually works um and as i say rewards were paid out if you did well if not you lost your job pretty quick
0: something i'm intrigued that's always intriguing about you mark you mentioned your coaching you paid using your own money to go and visit uh, Sport Lisbon, Barcelona, Valencia, among many others. Was was that a big gamble leaving the city and investing your own money into trying to, to become a coach?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And my wife's sitting next door, if you know, she thought I was absolutely nuts, Callum. Um, I won't use the exact <laughs> language that she used at the time, but no, I, I knew that I knew that I wanted to do it. And uh, you get to a certain age, and for me, I'm getting to. I was getting to near forty. And I knew if I didn't do it, I'd have no chance. And I've done okay for myself. Don't get me wrong. I read some ridiculous stories. I've done okay for myself. And I knew I'd put some money aside and, and paid for the house. So I'm thinking to myself, well, I, I, you live once. So I told my missus, but, you know, when you go to your wife and you say you're taking a, a 97% or 95% pay cut, it's a, it's a bit of a bill to swallow. and your kids at school <laughs> at the time. And, you know, and that, and that really was it. So I, but I knew also when I did it, I had to improve my depth of knowledge, Colin. You know, you can. There's a lot of people who do their coaching badges, and I knew that I never had the professional playing background, so I wouldn't have worked with some top coaches as many players have done. Um, and I knew I had to have a better understanding. And I never thought for one that second I'd be uh, granted access to the first team market. I thought without my, without a decent professional playing career, I was always going to struggle. So I saw myself in the academy. So I went around and I and I. Literally, I won't bore you with the details, but I must have found so many clubs and got pied on every club. And then finally, a guy called Diogo Matos, who's now working with UEFA, top top man uh, and a great friend, asked me over to play golf if I was available to go next day. I jumped on a on a flight, spent time with him, and he opened doors. You know, again the the the, the ECA European you know Clubs Association. Uh, he, he opened doors to Ajax. And then I had open doors to PSV, PSV open doors to Barcelona. Uh, and I was able to really spend time, Willem Tway in Holland, with a guy called Jan van Gogh. I was able to spend a lot of time there and understand their school, how their school worked, how they, their recruitment of young players worked. So when I came back as a Watford, later on, we worked with the Harefield School, and we were the first club to set that school up. We had 55 boys across all five-year groups working through Herefield all of whom came out with a minimum number of qualifications and their BTech, which was great talent. you know to see them it was always you either achieve in the classroom on a football pitch one yep. or the other. You know as a teacher that's nonsense. you've got to give a, you've got to give an environment where they can achieve in both and we had two or three boys kind of 15 you know a stars and top top level and a couple of boys almost on special needs come out with good qualifications and the BTech. So you're as proud as punch for them. They worked so hard, and they got scholarships into professional football as well. So that was for me. That year was vitally important, and I knew then that I could attack the academy system, and to attack it, I could work my way into it with a far, a far broader depth of knowledge about the whole, the whole subject.
0: You mentioned getting into the academy sector, and your first permanent coaching job was at Watford. What was that like? And there were some big names at Watford around the sort of times when you were there, Sean Dyche, Brendan Rogers, to name a few.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I went there and it was, I got a full-time job, first of all. I was—I mean, up, up to this point, you have to remember, I was at RBS, World Bank of Scotland, senior dealer, and I was leaving there two nights a week. I'd be getting in at 5.30 in the morning. I'd leave there at 4.30 to get to the Watford training ground for six o'clock to get home for 10.00 to basically grab a cup of soup to get up. And that was what you had to do for this period, you know, because you had to show your commitment. Watford had no money. And they knew I'd done football before, et cetera. So I did that, did okay, um, got the full-time offer. And that's when you're saying to your missus that this is a 95% pay cut. You know, that's when it's that's when it's like, whoa, and it's real, really real. And uh, so I did that, and and that was, for me, loved it. I loved it, but I've got a I'm the type of person that uh, I'm, I'm awful at many, many things. I can't change a plug color. I can't put a shelf up. but uh, if I commit to something, so you know you find yourself really committing to the hours at Watford. Um, Adie Boothroyd became manager, really was was great for me, looked after me, and he asked me to become Academy director. The school was set up etc. which he supported. And players coming through, and we had the likes of Dick Bate, who's the best coach educator, sadly passed away, but the best coach educator in the world, bar none. We had Sean Dice, who was my youth team coach, Did you believe at the time? And we got, got <laughs> great, big, close friends. Malcolm Mackay, Martin Hunter, a psychologist called Keith Mincher, outstanding. So we had some really good quality staff, and AD left, Brendan Rogers came through as well. So, you know, we had a really, it was a really good learning school, lots of different experiences in there. And it, it really helped everyone concerned, I believe.
0: In terms of the role as Academy, Academy Director, for someone like me, Mark, what, could you just enlighten me in terms of what does that involve on a day-to-day basis? Are you overseeing the whole structure or are working with a few teams at the same time as well?
1: You see, you're overseeing the whole structure, you have to delegate well. But again, when we have the school, for example, you've got 55 of your boys from 11 to 16 in the school system. Who would train in the morning? So they would come in. We would throw them into school. For example, Callum. Then they would be fed because many kids came from you know poor backgrounds, humble backgrounds. They'd be fed, go to class, and then at 9:30 they'd come and train 9:30 to 11. And at three o'clock, when the school broke up, they would catch up that class. So we had private tutors again relevant to the age group. So you got 55 boys there working and requiring guidance. see so a lot of your time is spent there. You're also taking the number of the reserves as well. What well, now the 23s which are the the, the pinnacle of the academy so it's the senior players making that transition you've got that in the training ground in the morning what the manager will want, you know, how many players going across to work with him, you're working with the youth team on a full time basis in the evening you're then taking the younger ones, helping oversee the younger ones, then you've got the under 14, 15, 16s arriving again in the evening, so all of these type of commitments, it made it a really long day, you were doing 85 90 hour weeks comfortably Um, Your day off was Sunday afternoon when the games programme finished. And it's a massive commitment. Massive commitment for you, but that's down to you. But it's a commitment on your family as well. Um, But I knew that, I I knew very quickly I could do this. Uh, Not in an arrogant way, but I knew I could do this. But I also recognised quickly that you had to be at one of the big clubs. You had to be at one of the top six, eight Premier League clubs to be in a position to impact, to make positive change. Mm. And at Watford, for all the work... It, you know, you can work hard and that's fine. But unless you're at Chelsea, Liverpool, Tottenham, Arsenal, City, United, those type of clubs, Everton, you were never really going to make the big inroads that you had to make.
0: You, you mentioned that frustration of not being able to maybe make those inroads that, that you wanted to make. Was that one of the motivations for ultimately leaving Watford and pursuing another role in maybe yeah, first-team football
1: yeah, with I, I'm very honest with you. I had a fallout with a guy at Watford who uh, basically was very keen to take over um, everything. So, um, I'll be, there's no, no secrets there. They, uh, talked about me working against the club's interest, which was soon, you know, ridiculed and gone. But that was me leaving Watford. Um, and, uh, the gentleman who now owns Brentford, Matthew Brenham. I, I tried to get Matthew to buy Watford. They were struggling financially. And Matthew was struggling to get to buy Brentford at the time, but he was always Brentford through and through Matthew. So, but I came across him, really liked him, um, and he, uh, he phoned me up one morning and said, would you come and take over Brentford? We had just set the coach at the time, Andy Scott. And it was literally a January at one o'clock in the morning. And I came in in the morning and started coaching the first team. And that was my first to go from the academy side of it. And, and through that, we set up a tournament called the Next Gen Series, which, you know, 24 years, biggest clubs were involved in under 19, the Barsters and Dortmunds and PSGs. Um, we set that up. Um, and as I say, from that point of view, I'm now on the first team. So I've now got this a taste of something I thought I'd never, ever taste. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it, really enjoyed it. Had six months there. And then I wanted a job, but he, Matthew hired Uwe Rosler and I became Sporting Director at Callum. So what ensued was two years of great learning for me to understand, to be in charge of the first team manager, the academy director, to be overseeing medical, analytical, sports science, logistics kit etc to oversee the whole package and work closely with an owner who was a breath of fresh air was a, was a great experience for me
0: before we talk about the role of sporting director i want to talk a wee bit more about matthew benham lots of people just look at brentford sometimes and think oh it's all down to money ball it's all down to this you've worked with him in the inside could you just enlighten us into to what the model was like there at your time because I feel that like a lot of the time people use that moneyball statement a lot without really knowing what's going on behind the scenes. For, for sure,
1: no, absolutely. I mean, Matthew is a, um, a mathematical genius. I hope he doesn't mind me saying that. You know, he's um, one of the top zero one percent. I believe in the country, outstanding mathematician, and, and he, he gathers people, top people around him, in terms of his the work that he does. Moneyball is probably like say, in the Ladybird books. Compared to a, you know, a Charles Dickens he is way ahead of that. Um, but he he applies his the, the data that he gathers in his in his day to day job, so to speak. Um, very very shrewd use of data, the algorithms that he into introduces and, and utilises, and it's obviously paid off very very well for him. So it's stuff way above my pay grade. You know, I'm just a basic guy with O levels, but Matthew's way above that, and um, just just a com- the commitment that he's shown to the club. So what he does is, as I say, is rocket science to you and I. But his commitment to the club, the building of the club, the infrastructure, you know, he's, uh, I had five really, nearly five good years there, thoroughly enjoyed it, great education for me. hope I played my role in where we got to the playoffs or just missing out in the Premier League. But it's, uh, you know, it's a fantastic club and now here I am at the West London Neighbours or Rivals and we've got to try and close that gap quickly and it's, um, it's a tough gap to close.
0: In terms of being Sporting Director while Uwe Rosler was there, what did your role as Sporting Director involve? Because we look at clubs like Manchester United and we hear that they're desperate for a Sporting Director and they need one. What does the role involve for maybe fans like myself who aren't fully aware of what happens in that role on a day-to-day basis?
1: It's a great question, Callum. It, it, it's, um, uh, where do I start? I think the lack of clarity on the role is one thing. So is it a Sporting Director? Is it director of football? Is it a technical director? What is it? What is the role actually? What are the responsibilities? There's a lack of clarity. Many times they get ex-players or, you know, just because it's recruitment. It's not just recruitment. You're in charge of all areas. In my mind, now I could do this at at Brent, there's a smaller club coming from League One into the Championship, but I'm absolutely firm of the belief that you can oversee the various departments. You can oversee recruitment, analysis, medical, sports science, and you delegate to really good people controlling individual departments. You give them responsibility, and with that comes accountability, of course, but you give them, you trust your people. So I'm always I'm always one for, I was in charge of everything. So a lot of the guys that I hired at Brentford are still there now, so I'm really proud of that and they're top people. Um, but I think you have that freedom to go and run and shape the departments. Of course, they have the individual budgets, a medical budget, the nurse's budget. These guys are put into you. You're seeing them daily, weekly meetings, etc. But you, you, that, for me, allows you to put your identity on it. What's one that the owner wants? You know, so I would speak to Matthew every day. I knew exactly what he was looking for in terms of the club developing. I could put my fingerprint, work closely with the manager. There's one of the biggest things. What does you know? What does the sporting director have to do? He has to get on with the manager. Now, in an ideal scenario, the sporting director has plays a key role in recruiting the manager, and obviously, if it's wrong, sacking the manager. But that should be the process. But you have to get on. You know, you, he has that manager has to know that as a sporting director, you've got his back. When you go into a board meeting, you are defending your man, your manager, and he has to know that. And I, I think I can say very. Clear, very honestly that Uwe knew I had his back. I always always we spoke closely every day. You know, we would we would have some really blunt chats, which you have to have, give honest opinion, respectfully. And you, you know, at the end of the day, I was in charge of him in terms of the the role, but he was a manager. He was a guy on the touchline having to pick teams and having to deal with the stresses and the strains and the media criticism when it came or the media support when it came. So you understand what he has to go through. And he's an outstanding guy. You know, did very well. Moved on to Wigan, which at the time was a bigger club. And uh, I learned a lot in that period. But that, that the role of sporting director requires clarity. Give it clarity, it's a fantastic position.
0: In terms of Ube Rosler's success at Brentford, when he went to Wigan, did he try and poach you and take you with him? No, not at all. Not
1: at all. No, I'm saying that in the right way. I mean, Ube went. He knew that I love being on the grass, working on the grass, but I never encroached colour. That was what... So I'm going back to your sporting director question. I never put a tracksuit on and went Mm -hmm. on the grass. That white lion was his domain. So I'd be behind the picket fence. I might watch training and look at a list, and I could give him an opinion on what I think, how a player's training. He wanted honest opinion, but I wouldn't encroach into his world. And uh, that was really, really important. But he knew but that's what I love doing. So when he went, I got the phone call from Matthew. We had dinner with Frank McParlane there as well. And um, he said, I got offered a job on a Sunday morning. I was ironing a shirt, I was going to an Arsenal game as a guest in the box, got the phone call, and that was it, I got offered a job of managing Brentford. So very, always be thankful to Matthew for the trust that he showed. But I hope also that I earned that, that invitation.
0: So we'll dive down to the ocean I am we'll make her home in a deep sea cave, and her shells will all be open. They'll be filled with song. They'll be filled with song. I'll we'll dive down to the ocean. I will make her home in a deep sea cave, and her shells will all be open. They'll be filled with song. They'll be filled with song.